Let's go. Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. Hi folks, Oliver here. This week we have a really lovely and timely episode with Horace. He's being interviewed on The Disruptive Voice, a podcast produced at the Harvard Business School. This episode was produced a few days after the passing of Clayton Christensen by Katie Zandbergen, the community manager at the Forum for Growth and Innovation. I don't think I've heard Horace this reflective before. It's a great episode that goes into the core of why micro is really disruptive, assessed against the theory that Clay proposed. For those of you who are into the more theoretical, it's a wonderful episode. Most of you will know that we're massive fans of Clay's work here, and he really holds a special place in our heart. He's obviously been a massive influence on Horace, and subsequently on me and how we see the world. If you want to hear one of the best interviews that I think Horace has ever done, I'd recommend going to check out the interview he did with Clayton on The Critical Path back in 2012. He's discussing the book, How Will You Measure Your Life? It's a poignant listen, and it really is one of the most beautiful embodiments of a teacher-student relationship I think I've ever seen. I've linked to it in the show notes. And now, here's the episode with Horace. Welcome to The Disruptive Voice. My name is Katie Sandbergen, and I'm the community manager at the Forum for Growth and Innovation. Our podcast is named in honor of Professor Clayton Christensen, the father of disruptive innovation theory and the founder of the MBA course, Building and Sustaining a Successful Enterprise, here at Harvard Business School. Clay is also the founder of our group, the Forum for Growth and Innovation. He has been and always will be our guide in all that we do. As many of our listeners will know, Clay passed away in January of 2020, and so we are recording this episode at a tender time in all of our lives. We wanted to publish this particular episode today because we have in the studio Horace Dedieu, a favorite student of Clay's and one of the most gifted apostles for his theories. Horace is the father of the micromobility movement underway globally, and we wanted to talk to him about how the theories that he learned from and with Clay have shaped his thinking and predicted the shape of the industry he's helping to create. As we head into this episode, a word to all of you to whom Clay was important. We mourn his loss with you, we celebrate his life and his work, and we know that he would have wanted us to get on with it. So for you, Clay, and for all of you listening, I bring you the disruptive voice. Today I'm pleased to welcome Horace Didio to the podcast. Horace is a professional analyst, and along with mobile computing, one of his primary areas of interest is transportation, and specifically micromobility, which is a term he coined to define mobility that is enabled by a vehicle that weighs less than 500 kilograms, or about 1,100 pounds. Horace has a background in computer engineering and product development, and his career includes years spent as a senior analyst at Nokia, and also time working alongside Clayton Christensen as a senior fellow at the Christensen Institute. Currently, Horace is a co-founder and chief strategy officer at a San Francisco-based company called Bond Mobility, which he describes as the world's fastest and funnest micromobility service. 
He's an analyst at Asimco, which specializes in software development and consulting services for companies interested in deploying mobile applications. And he's a co-founder of Micromobility Industries, which is building a community and hosts conferences and creates content around micromobility, including a podcast that explores the disruption to urban transport that comes from new electric, lightweight utility vehicles. Along these lines, Horace is also a host of the Critical Path podcast, which contemplates the causality of success and failure in mobile computing and related industries. In short, Horace is a visionary who has spent his career working at the intersection of business and technology, and I'm delighted to have him join me in the Disruptive Voice podcast studio today. Horace, welcome. Thank you so much. You have such a wonderful introduction. Today we're going to be discussing micromobility and the future of transportation, and particularly through the lenses of Clay's theories. Now, in introducing you, I touched briefly on your definition of micromobility, but as the person who coined the term, could you take a deeper dive into what you mean by micromobility? Yes, and first I'd like to reflect a bit because we are recording just shortly after Clay has left us, and um, it's a very emotional time for all of us here uh, in his community. But I'd like to dedicate, actually, the, the entire work uh, of micromobility to him as uh, it really was inspired by him, if not entirely created by him, and the, the theory he, he gave us. Micromobility is truly a low-end disruption and it is also a new market disruption. And I, I came to know it, uh, if not coined the f- term, but I came to realize that it existed while working uh, at the Clerstensen Institute. So uh, I was looking at the future of mobility. I was looking at the future of, of automobility, actually, in particular, and I couldn't find a truly disruptive path forward. There were many sustaining ideas there. There were the famous uh, autonomous and shared and electric drives. But as I talked to Clay, these were not disruptive in that sense. And so I was a little bit frustrated, and it was through this um, negative result that I I said, maybe we're not looking at the data correctly and measuring the wrong things. And then we're measuring the auto industry. We're measuring uh, how big or how small the cars were. We were measuring how many there would be made and where. We were measuring drive systems and fuel options, but we were looking at the car fundamentally. And so the logic of micromobility actually came because I realized that there were vehicles below the car, I call it, you know, lighter and smaller, and, and they were just not getting measured. It was hard to get data. And actually, that's a great clue when you, when you realize that the world isn't measuring something, but yet it exists, and it exists in large quantity because these things were common in, in China. They were common in Europe. And even children were playing with scooters and playing with hoverboards and all these electrical-powered vehicles that were kind of fun but toy-like. And no one was really getting a handle on it. And so that's what inspired me to look into it and dive into it. And as soon as I figured out that it was really a potential to be a business, then I said, I I better lead here and try to make it happen. I've heard you talk about product market fit and talk about different types of micro vehicles that are emerging in different countries. When you look at Europe and and the U.S., what sort of micro vehicles do you see becoming more popular? 
Well, the interesting paradoxical thing is that by 2016, it was clear that China was leading in terms of bike sharing. And this, these were Ofo and Mobike that were putting out millions of bikes in China, and they were trying to expand internationally. And so they were leading in that respect. These were not powered vehicles. They were human-powered vehicles. Then Europe was doing a phenomenal job deploying electric bikes, but mostly as personal vehicles, not as shared vehicles. So China was doing bike share in free-floating form. Europe was doing personal-owned electric bikes, and the U.S. was simply doing cars. And so it felt like, you know, car sharing at least. And it just felt the U.S. was again going to be surpassed by Asia and Europe as it came to pass with the mobile phone back in the late 90s, early 2000s, when I actually also joined that industry and I saw the U.S. as a laggard. And, and, yet, and yet, within seven years, the U.S. leapfrogged in the mobile phone world by putting out better software in the form of Android and iOS. But in the micromobility industry, the U.S. also leapfrogged in 2018 with the powered scooter in the sense that this was Bird and eventually Lime really uh, succeeding with that form factor. And, and so in many ways now the word micromobility has come to mean these shared electric scooters that are fundamentally an American innovation, not manufactured in America, but developed as a business in America. And this is this to me is a very, again, repeating history that it happened before. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to work out the same way long-term with micromobility, but we're seeing a lot of the software leadership that led the U.S. to dominate at least the ecosystems of mobility repeating itself here, and it's a tremendous story. Thinking about the example here in the United States where we have cars and now we have these e-scooters kind of on the up and up, mm-hmm. I've heard you talk about the incumbents, the automakers, mm-hmm. being too slow to adapt to new mm-hmm. technology, whereas the e-scooters are really able to take advantage of new software that's coming out and new platforms mm-hmm. and so on. Could you tell our listeners a bit more about that? Yes, we actually concluded a conference just yesterday here on campus where a company called Super Pedestrian, and they're actually a local company to Cambridge, Massachusetts. And they're an MIT spinoff that developed initially a a clever e-bike, a motor and and sensor package. Now they're developing a clever scooter or electric scooter that has within it a whole bunch of sensors and self-diagnostics and communications capabilities that allow it to be diagnosed remotely and managed remotely, which makes the fleet operations so much easier and more cost-effective, where nowadays, you know, there's a lot of cost in that equation, and now there are ways to reduce that. And so what we're seeing is that the adoption of automotive-style connectivity and diagnostics, sensing and computation, are being absorbed in the scooter industry within a matter of months, if not years. And this is happening so rapidly that, in fact, we have the fruit fly effect underway, where we have a very rapid life cycle for software, hardware, and business models that's happening where I would say in the cadence of twice a year that we have a whole new platform emerging. So I think Bird and Lime are their fourth generation scooter now, two years in. 
And e-bike businesses are evolving rapidly as well with new motor technologies, new clever drive systems, belt drives. As an observer of the auto market for a couple of years, it was frustrating to see how slowly things were changing there. And I, I make some jokes about it. One is that, you know, we, we had the Toyota you could buy in 2005 still with a cassette player. You could buy, I guess, CDs are probably still in some cars today. And so then once a product takes shape, it lasts in the field or in the use of, of the consumer for decades. The average life, I think, of an American car today is like 13 years old, and that means a half are probably younger than half are older. So imagine taking five years to bring a product to market and then 15 years for it to finally be recycled. That's a 20-year cycle for that generation. And that is endemic in the industry because things have to be built in huge volumes in order for them to be profitable. So you have huge lead times when you have huge volumes and you have huge capital expenditures. And none of these things are present in micromobility. And so in many ways, again, it's inspired by the mobile phone industry where uh, there we have a one-year cadence between every, as you know, for the iPhone at least, every fall, late summer, there's a new product launch. And then the new OS is shipping at the same time. Microsoft did the same thing with, with Windows and PCs that were tied to that same ecosystem. So we're seeing that cadence of one year for phones and PCs, but we, we are not seeing it for cars, but we are seeing even faster for for micromobility. And I think that's a really powerful advantage. Yeah, I've heard you talk about in the auto industry, this notion of driven miles and the average trip that people take is 12 miles or less in mm -hmm. general. And thinking about it in this context of the incumbents being slow to evolve and they're not really very nimble. Can you tell our listeners a bit more about your hypothesis that micromobility can capture as much as half of the transportation market? Yes, and this goes again back to the principle of deciding what is performance and deciding how to compete on the basis of performance. It also comes to the question of what do you measure. Obviously, if you decide in the automotive industry that performance is equivalent to horsepower, and I, you know, I'm picking one of many dimensions of performance in the automobile, but let's say horsepower is often cited in, in, the, in the literature when you advertise a product. There are the things that are cited. You might say mileage, you know, or fuel economy. You might say for electric cars, certainly the range of the vehicle is very much the, the basis of competition today. You also th see things like interior comforts. You see cup holders and you see entertainment systems increasingly. And when you judge yourself, and of course you have groupthink and peer pressure and everyone is looking at the same reports about how everyone is doing in the auto industry, and there's a one-upmanship always going on, obviously, in competitive markets. And so the industry has rushed up and up and up in performance on all of these metrics I mentioned to the point where we have far more horsepower than we need. We have far more cup holders than we need. And we have definitely far more range than we need, both in gasoline and electric, actually. Because if you look at the data, and this is the reason why, I mean, car makers will measure these things. And then they'll also measure things like how many cars we sold, how many customers we have, how many dealers we, we have, how many dollars we are getting from service, etc. These are all the metrics that are key performance indicators that automakers have. The thing they're not measuring, as far as I know, and, and this is not 
something that I've ever seen before. I collected the data myself, which what is the distribution of trip distances? In other words, how long are trips? Are there a vast majority of long trips? Because if you're making cars with long range and large horsepower and high top speed, the assumption is built in that you're going to go far and you're going to go fast. But when you actually observe behavior in the jobs to be done since, and you ask people, well, and in fact, the Department of Transportation surveys this, and that's where the data came from. And, and it shows that people would typically drive very short distances. Now, by typically, I mean that the probability of a trip below 12 miles is 90%. So very few trips are be- above that. In fact, the most common trip is around two miles. And so you do something called a histogram where you, you show the probability distribution of a certain distance. And when you see this and you realize that it's log normally distributed, meaning it's heavily skewed towards zero, uh, logarithmically so, then this tells you that the demand is at the low end in terms of distance, but the supply is at the high end of distance. And this is how I summarize the paradox of mobility today is that we've built systems and we've built products and services that are aimed squarely at the wrong market in terms of what people do. And it's a weird disconnect between supply and demand that that shouldn't exist, but it does. And it's kind of been also a very big puzzle as to how we ever got this way. And it has to do with history. But fundamentally, what that means is that there's this huge market at the bottom in terms of distance that is overserved by the car. And in fact, if the solution were to travel two miles, the car is probably a bad solution. You end up having a longer time to set up the drive, to end the drive in terms of parking, and then you have a lot of traffic in between. And so the solution isn't just a worse, let's say, good enough product in the form of a micromobility solution, but it's actually that it is superior along the dimension of actually getting there quickly. And that's actually what's being discovered by users early on in micromobility, and that's why we're seeing such a high adoption rate. So you've got the incumbents who are overserving their customers and fleeing up market and focusing on the bells and whistles and sustaining innovations, which is your classic low-end disruption. What about new market creation and non-consumption, especially in the example of a company called Smide? Smide was the name of the company I co-founded, now rebranded as Bond Mobility. But this is a very good question, and it's something that at the heart of the disruption theory and the anomalies are associated with it. Because, I mean, one of the reasons I went to work for the Clay was to resolve the anomaly with the iPhone and the iPod before it as being high-end products, but at the same time disruptive. And how is that possible? But the answer I came to was that the iPhone and the iPod were worse computer and stereo. If you remember stereo, component stereo systems, they were far worse at those jobs to be done of being kind of a computer and a, and a, and a music and entertainment system. But when compared to other competitors in doing the same thing, they were premium. So the challenge was sort of what is the competition for those products and what are they actually aimed at? And I think if you understand that the, these low-end computers as smartphones are aimed at 
personal computer, then it makes sense to understand them as a low-end disruption. And now, you know, we, we'll see how much further they can carry that story. Uh, generally, they've also created a lot of usage because we have people using them 80 times a day, and we didn't have personal computers being used that many hours or that many times a day. And so there's this creation of demand, if you will, for mobile computing. Now, in the case of micromobility, it might appear actually because if you look at price alone, the price of a ride on a scooter or an e-bike is actually quite high relative to even a car because a car is about 50 cents a mile. But if you ride a scooter for one mile, you're actually probably going to end up paying $3 or more. And so it seems like this is actually a more expensive product coming in against the car on a per-mile basis. But it competes on another basis of being very convenient and, as I said, very fast. You get the job done quicker. So there's a convenience and this accessibility that it competes on that is less, uh, let's say, less price-oriented. In particular, when you look at longer distances than one mile, this is where e-bikes also shine because you you can traverse a city. I can go from Cambridge, for example, to the center of Boston with a great e-bike experience, and, and I end up there faster, cutting through traffic and so on. So it's all about segmenting according to jobs. And the job of a micromobility vehicle is I want to be there on time. I sometimes say the job isn't going A to B. It's A to B in time C. And that C element isn't often even measurable or predictable with a car because you have the traffic in between. And that's what actually the mapping software today from Google and Apple will try to predict for you. And they're often wrong, as you know. So there's this element of deciding whether you're competing against a gasoline car with its cost structure or you're competing against the time that typically it demands, and also the parking, which is an additional cost that's often forgotten and buried, but yet people perceive it very well. And if you you don't have parking, you don't go. That's a general rule of automobile life. Thinking about these new companies that are emerging on the scene in micromobility, you mentioned Lime and Bird. And I was reading that Bird recently launched Bird Platform, which is a franchise model. Mm -hmm. And this ties into how do you deal with caps and regulations and ways that cities are trying Mm -hmm. to cope with the onslaught of e-scooters and shared bikes and so on. Could you tell our listeners a bit more about the franchise model? Sure. And here's the crux of the problem. And uh, it's fascinating. I wish I had more time. There are 1,680 cities in the world that are above 300,000 inhabitants. There are many, many more thousands of communities that are below 300,000 and let's say above 50,000. So now I haven't counted those medium-sized cities, but the largest cities, the 300,000 and higher, there's 1,680 of them. That's a very big number. Now, if you think about a company like Amazon that tries to manage logistics for ordering and delivering products to its hundreds of millions of customers, they have difficulty with launching into many markets. They are strong in the United States, UK, and expanding in other countries, but it's actually taken a lot longer to get international with, and even Walmart has the same problem. They're, these businesses, which are feet on the ground, are very tough to scale internationally. Now, imagine you're having to scale to 1,600 large cities and potentially 50,000 smaller ones. 
there is a real problem with doing it in a central fashion, meaning that you have every week a weekly meeting to discuss the state of the business. And, and so the only way to manage something on that scale is obviously franchising, which, of course, was invented in the United States. We see its implementation with many, many businesses which have to deploy tens of thousands of points of sale. And so the magic of franchising means that you can actually package your offering and deliver it to entrepreneurs who then execute locally. And I think that makes so much sense in transportation. Notice how Uber and Lyft have not done so yet, although there is a sort of a management structure where there's a lot of local autonomy in terms of making decisions, but it's still pretty much one company. I imagine in order to deliver mobility to the 6 billion people that are going to live in cities in the next 30 years, and that's not an exaggeration, by the way, to deliver mobility to 6 billion people, you can't do it in a with a central office type of solution. So I think we'll see this sort of franchising happening. And, and as long as you can packetize, and that's the problem, is to package this this solution in such a turnkey manner that makes it easy for someone to pick up and run with it. That also, by the way, requires that product to be fairly static and not evolving, which kind of contradicts the whole cadence of improvement. So this is the tug of war that exists between wanting to scale, which requires a franchise model, and needing to evolve rapidly, which requires an integrated model and therefore a more centralized approach. And this, this is where the struggle will be in the next few years, as maybe the bets that are made in one way or the other may pay off differently, and we'll see consolidations and all kinds of other drama. You mentioned just now delivering micromobility to 6 billion people. And it made me think of one of your micromobility podcast episodes in mm. which you spoke with a fellow named Winston Kwan, mm-hmm. who's a professor at the University of Edinburgh Business School. Yes. You discussed social innovation, the democratization of mobility, and Alex Roy's notion of universal basic mobility. Mm. Could you tell us a bit more about these concepts and how micromobility ties into them? Yeah, it's a great question because the, so here's the, one of the things I left actually from answering earlier on an earlier question, which is really competing against non-consumption on on a global scale. Now, I said that a lot of trips that people take, even in America or in Europe today with micro vehicles, are really trips they wouldn't have taken otherwise. Let's take Santa Monica. This is the genesis of micromobility. If you've ever been there. You know, it is a bit tricky to park, although you can have options, but you have to usually pay, and it's and it's a hassle to get in and out. So what I think people do is they drive and park once, and then during the day, as they have different things to do, they might pop onto a scooter and get those things done. So it might be going to work and going shopping and then going meeting people and friends and then going maybe to eat or so on. Now, these small trips, before you would only be limited to that radius of walking distance from your car, and that limited to how many trips you would take and how, what would you do. Now, I think with micromobility, people suddenly say, well, I'm going to add one extra thing I do every day. And that means that essentially they might you know, increase the amount of travel 20% or something like that, which actually in many ways is not about reducing you know, carbon or other environmental aspects. Some of these things do consume energy, but it's about really creating another growth phase in transportation. Now, in particular, that's the, the very wealthy markets, right? But if you look at the non-consumption in countries which are burgeoning right now, you have megacities growing in Africa, in South Asia, you have South America as well. 
Mexico City, 34 million people. Cairo's in the 20 million range now. Istanbul, also 20 million. And you go on and on. And the projections are the city with the most people in the world will be New Delhi with 42 million people and by, by 2050. Uh, that's 30 years from now. That's one generation. That's not that long. 42 million people. Now, how are they going to get around? And will they see the sort of infrastructures that both North America and China built in a few decades, but they're going to need it faster and they're going to need more of it. And there's a limit to how much money there is available to do these infrastructural quantum leaps, if you will. I think that the micromobility offers this great solution. And so we're seeing, actually, this is just brand new or, or hot off the presses, is in Lagos, Nigeria, emerged a new class of service for mobility I forgot the name just now, but it's it's basically uh, taxis, but the, they're motorcycle taxis. And essentially, you're like getting an Uber on a moped or motorcycle. And the government actually banned them. They were so successful that they were banned because they were causing too much congestion and were all kinds of parochial reasons. And I think that will be reversed at some point as maybe, you know, things get consolidated better. But generally, this is exploding right now in all of these markets. And same thing in, in India. So when you look at the UN data and you say, OK, well, how many people are going to live in cities? How are we going to provide for them three to four trips a day? How are we going to do so without destroying the planet? How are we going to do so without actually paving over the planet? Because all of those people, if they were to have cars, they need parking, as I said. And every car is going to need three to four parking spots. So it needs more room than you do in order to live. So human parking is cheaper than car parking. And, you know, this real estate has to happen in a city, which is the most expensive place to pave over. So if someone offers a solution which is human-sized, shared, electric, and accessible, that'll take off. So I think that, again, that's the logic there. You just mentioned developing markets, but bringing the conversation back to the developed world, for instance, in the U.S., I've heard you say that on average, a car is parked 96% of the time, and as you just mentioned, often on valuable city real estate. And you've also said that the United States has devoted the amount of land equal to the size of North Carolina to parking, which just kind of blew my mind. And you've said that if you want to know the future of the car, study parking, and that in terms of city planning, the economic economics are really going to change over time. And you've already got the example, for instance, that you can't buy gas in Manhattan anymore. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to think more about this kind of issue of city infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And obviously, parking is a big part of that. And on a personal note, my husband is Dutch, and we spent nearly six years living in the Netherlands mm-hmm. after we were married. And I just loved the cycling infrastructure mm-hmm. there. You know, we have three young kids. We didn't own a car while we lived there. And between our bikes and the trains and the buses, we could get anywhere we needed to go very easily, very affordably. And the bike lanes in the Netherlands are separate from the streets where the cars are. And they're also separate from the sidewalks where the pedestrians are. And they've got their own stoplights, their own dotted Mm -hmm. lines. And it was such a common sense and practical way to get around. And I was curious to know, do you think that the Dutch example shows that if you build the infrastructure, people will cycle or scooter? Or do you think it's more like the example with the car where the car came first and then the roads were built after Even in the case of the Dutch, the bike came first and the infrastructure sort of fed it to grow. You have to look at the history of how the Dutch became a cycling nation. It it didn't happen organically from birth. 
there was a time when the car was still seen as the future in in Holland. This was about 60s and 70s. The great boom of, of mobility that occurred with European, especially the Volkswagen, is sort of the epitome of the Model T of Europe, if you will, the thing that mobilized the entire populations. But what happened was by the 1970s, there was a, a sort of a crisis in, in Amsterdam where, due to accidents, it was an environmental concern. It wasn't parking. It wasn't a cost issue. It was actually that children were killed by cars. And just people just rose up and, and kind of there was a rebellion almost. And people occupied the city and demanded that the car would be restrained in some way. And that political movement grew and grew and it became normal for city planners to accommodate the bicycle. But it took 30, 40 years before it, it blossomed into what we have today. And so many city planners say about Amsterdam, uh, who, critics would say, well, we can't be, we're not Amsterdam, we can't be. As, well, then forget that Amsterdam it wasn't the way it is now. It was also something that, that took time. So in one sense, you can look at the cadence of, of change of cars versus vehicles. But if you look at the cadence of change of infrastructures, well, then it's even worse. It's like I said, 30 years for a city to, or even country to reevaluate its priorities. And so that really is the conundrum for the, the, the I, th I think, the dilemma. Let me put it this way. I think cities are micromobility's best friend. They're also micromobility's worst enemy because in some ways they appreciate this alternative and this option and many city planners and many city policymakers are welcoming and embracing anything that cuts emissions, anything that cuts traffic, anything, all of these things are positive. But at the same time, they're loath to make changes in infrastructure, and there's a great cost of felt associated with that. Again, I'm, I'm obviously biased, but you know the data I've seen suggests that actually you can pay for that infrastructure simply because your citizens will be healthier and they actually need less health care. This is an amazing fact, which is hard to convince someone of. But because if you, if you switch to active mobility, you will actually reduce the amount of, of health care costs in society way beyond what it costs you to build infrastructure. The second thing is that the infrastructure itself, uh, for cycling at least that we know, which is translatable to other modes of micromobility, but cycling infrastructure is one-tenth the cost of automobile infrastructure. And this includes parking and on and off ramps and all the you know separation and all these other things. The battle isn't even on the cost of it. The battle is on real estate. How much space is allocated to the car versus other modes? And as you said, in, in the Netherlands, the bike lane is separate from pedestrians and is separate from cars and is physically separated, which means they had to carve the street up. They've even given some lanes to transit as well. The current best practice is to give one lane to the car, one lane to the bus, one lane to the bike, and one lane to the pedestrian. So that literally the car goes from having three lanes to having one lane. So it's really constrained. And that's becoming normal in Europe. But again, this becomes a political fight because the resistance to that change, businesses actually are some of the objectors to this, which is because they feel that that restricts the amount of footfall in their stores and retail. And this is actually proven not to be true, but again, conventional Wisdom has it that if I don't have parking for my customers, I don't have customers. Yes, but if those customers were to come by bike, they'll actually probably stop more often, spend more money, and all these good things. In fact, in New York, when they opened bike lanes on certain streets, to the objection of local retail, retail sales went up by 14 15%. So hmm. now, again, I don't want to be 
suggesting it's always the case. But the thing is that we kind of are inherently conservative about change. And this is one of those things that is very political and is very on the ground. And obviously, the influence of small businesses and individuals who may lose their parking spots are going to make a noise in City Hall. So in that sense, the city could end up being the restriction to deployment because the infrastructure is not coming through. At the same time, they give us a lot of support because they want to see it happen. So it's kind of catch-22 there. And there are things being considered on the federal level and the international level to sort of break this deadlock. But I think it's beyond scope right now to get into that. But yeah, I can easily be the devil's advocate here and say that the thing that will slow micromobility the most will be whether there's resistance at the city level By the way, another thing is, you know, if you know your history of the automobile, you'll know that the car was faced the same dilemma early on, that cities were the main naysayers to the car. They put in draconian regulations to slow the car, to, you know, force people to have a person with a flag walk in front of the car. You know, it it was scaring the horses. It was it was dangerous and all these other things. But it was, in fact, the federal government that came in and said, we need to have rules that apply to the whole country. And it sort of suppressed a bit of the local resistance that occurred with the automobile. And in some ways, they overdid it. So now it's all a great big subsidy for the car. But nonetheless, historically, that's the process. And the only question I have is how long it takes. How are these forces, this tug of war between dramatic change, people just getting out there and owning the street with their vehicles and just taking over and being almost militant about it. And then cities sort of lagging and catching up with the consumer demand that's going to be unleashed. And that's that's the process of hard to predict. It's a, it's a feedback loop that's very hard, therefore, to kind of forecast. So it sounds like it's an example really where hopefully there'll be early adopters who really are success stories that other cities might look to for inspiration. Yeah. In fact, this is a question I get asked most by entrepreneurs in this space and founders is what what city should we go to? How are cities going to respond? It's all about B2G almost. It's not even a B2C or B2B business. It's like, how do we work with government? And I said, well, any customer base, if you think your your customers are cities, then segment them. Segment them by job to be done. What is the job of the city administrators the policymakers. And as I said, there's 1,600 large cities and 50,000 small cities decide based on that population, which is not small at all, decide how to divide it into early adopters and laggards, divide it into people who have a job to be done to be progressive in terms of reducing carbon footprint, for example. And Paris is one way and Frankfurt's another way, and I'm not saying they are opposites, but I'm saying that there's a lot of variation in this. And then once you segment correctly, then you have a strategy for go-to-market. Go to the early adopters who are welcoming and embracing your entry and ignore the laggards. And eventually the laggards will come around because, again, they'll become jealous, which is the usual mechanism by which you have (laughs) the positive reinforcement of adoption where people, they have the fear of missing out. So that's my advice is that there isn't an as simple answer of saying, do A, B, and C, but rather understand a job. And then depending on your solution, try to position on the early job correctly and move forward, getting, you know, footholds and so on. One of the characteristics of micromobility is that it also works well with other modes of transport. So it's multimodal. Thinking about it from that perspective, what do you see as the role of software companies in terms of thinking about the future of micromobility? Like, how are they going to make the experience flow for someone trying to get from A to B? 
So let me touch on this idea that micromobility plays well with others. And I love the word that Clay gave me called conformability. And so he thought that if something is conformable, then it fits in the network very easily. The implications for business models are very profound because either you're going to build a module or you're going to build integrated solutions. And the beauty of micromobility as a solution is that it does indeed not exclude others. So this is the most classic example is that you can actually take a scooter that folds up and put it in your car. You cannot take a car in a bus with you. In fact, buses can also take bicycles if they have racks. And many cars have racks for bicycles as well. So the bicycle is a little bit bigger than the scooter, but it certainly can get along with the car, can actually cohabit. In fact, on the infrastructure side, the bicycle can live with a car on the street, but a car cannot go onto a bike lane. So if a bike lane is through the woods, no cars can go there. The car demands far more of the world than the bicycle does. And all the bicycle does is asks, excuse me, can I just share what you already have? And often they are welcome. So the point about any of these disruptive potential ideas is that to what extent do they come in and say, I don't mean to bother you, but can I just come in and participate with you? That's the, in contrast, again, to the big, big leaps forward that are being proposed for the automobile. When you think about autonomy, there's a huge amount of regulation. Some people say we need to redesign our cities around it. We need to put machine interfaces so that we get the safety we need. We can do a lot with the brain power today in the car, but we would probably need more than that outside the car to be able to make this system work. And you, you start to hear that to cram, this is, again, Clay's word, is cramming is you want to make a giant leap. The moonshot is the modern way of saying this. But the idea is to make this giant leap in technology in order to sort of overcome all these obstacles. And I like to point out that micromobility was never invented, unlike the R&D budgets that are being spent on mobility moonshots. And by the way, the total there is from McKinsey at $220 billion over the last 10 years. That's in the domain of CASE, so connected, autonomous, shared, and electric. So CASE technologies have consumed investments at least 220, maybe $250 billion, and we have very little to show for it, certainly no profit so far from any of those things. On the same time, Micromobility, two years out of the gate, has had a few billion dollars invested in it, but already people are like banging the table saying, where's the profits? And are, some companies are saying, we're up just about to break even. So that's Lime saying it as of this year, they're going to be able to break even. So even though they have zero ramp, even though they have vast adoption, even though they have not something in 15 years, but saying, hey, we've got 100 million in two years rides, this is actual rides, and they're rising faster than car sharing ever did. And by the way, there's zero subsidies for micromobility. There's a lot harder. It's like the cities want to extract money from this service. They don't want to say, here's extra money to run your bus. They're saying, if you put these things on the street, we want you to pay us. So the city's collecting taxes from these services. All of that, even so, we're seeing a very likely outcome of success. So to me, it all speaks to this logic that Clay said, you know, be conformable, be modular, and also be profitable as soon as possible because with the cyclicality of business, you might not get the funding. And so if there's an AI winter again, as we lived through several before, all the money for self-driving cars will evaporate and all that talent that's been allocated suddenly will need to find work. And I hope they come to work for us in micromobility. 
Speaking of working in micromobility, your company in San Francisco, Bond Mobility, you describe on LinkedIn as bionic mobility, and it's essentially a high-performance, wide-range, speed e-bike service. What I found interesting about it is that it's built not only for the urban environment, but also for suburban micromobility. Could you tell us a bit about your thoughts on the future of micromobility in suburban areas? And is this kind of micromobility coming in at the low end and then moving slowly but surely at market? Because actually we're positioning logic that we know, again, from Clay, is that things go inexorably better with the entrant that starts at the bottom. The tendency is, in fact, to climb the performance trajectory faster than the demand for improvement exists, right? That's the classic trajectories that anchor the theory. And so my only idea on Bond was that we should plan for that high performance early on. And so that includes distances traveled, speed traveled, and indeed from that spectrum of performance that we call low to high being short distance to long distance, sort of let's start by targeting the middle, actually. Because the low end is going to be so, the demand is so strong that many, many companies will be there and, and very few will have the incentives to solve the middle range problems. Now, the technical solution involves an e-bike, not a scooter, and an e-bike in particular that is by regulation, uh, and this is not nothing we can do about right now, but generally this is a historic situation, is that those vehicles are regulated to operate up to 28 miles an hour or 45 kilometers an hour. And that is way faster than scooters are typically permitted. And so this exists as a classification in Europe. It exists also in the U.S. And we thought that it would be nice to be able to deliver shared mobility on vehicles, which are effectively mopeds in performance, and yet still be active mobility in that you have to pedal and you have to get some exercise, which, again, a lot of people say no, but I think about the job to be done that somehow some people exist who like to be active when they travel. And the analogy I give is that let's assume you have three ways of getting to the second floor of a building. One way is to get on an elevator. Another way is to take the stairs. But yet a third way might be to take the escalator. Now, if you think about that, the car is very similar to the elevator. It's a box and, and sort of moves a few people at a time, and it's not very good for throughput. The escalator is far more efficient for large numbers of people. In fact, that's kind of similar to the transit solutions we have. And walking is very similar to taking the stairs. Now, if you put these three in front of someone and they have to choose I think most people actually would like to get into the elevator, but typically it's not there when they need it. So it's kind of a little bit of a lag with that. And you get into that elevator, you actually make it to the top faster than anyone else. And everyone else takes the escalator. Hardly anybody climbs the stairs. Well, our solution, if I may be so brief, is to actually have a solution for people who climb the escalator. There are those people (laughs) who say, you know what? I'm on an escalator, even though I can stand here let me just try to climb all the way. And, and I'd like to do that myself, and I'm annoyed when I can't, and I know other people are as well. Now, that's a weird subclass of people that want the acceleration of the machine, but they also want to be active. And I think that's what I consider premium. That, to me, is the logic of bond mobility. Our time together is running short. As a final question, many of our BSSE alumni and current students are no doubt fascinated by this dynamic field of micromobility and also how the theories from the course relate to all that's happening in this industry. With this in mind, do you have any advice, thoughts, or parting words to share with our listener? 
All this is made possible, as I said, by Clay's uh, vision. Now, he's no longer with us, but his theories are. And in this way of thinking, he said, I may not have an opinion, but my theory does have an opinion. So my recommendation is to study what he's written and to listen to what he has said to us and then just use the theory. It's, It's the greatest gift he has ever given us. Well, thank you so much, Horace. I really enjoyed our conversation and hope to speak with you again soon. Thank you.